Welcome to the Campus Energy and Sustainability Podcast. In each episode, we will talk with leading campus professionals, thought leaders, engineers, and innovators addressing the unique challenges and opportunities facing higher ed and corporate campuses. Our discussions will range from energy conservation and efficiency to planning and finance, from building science to social science, from energy systems to food systems. We hope you are ready to learn, share, and ultimately accelerate your institution towards solutions. I'm your host, Dave Carlscott. I'm a principal at Fovia, an energy, carbon, and business planning firm. Today's show was recorded by my friend and podcast collaborator, Jason DeLam. Jason is a carbon and energy consultant based in Lexington, Kentucky. Jason assists utilities, cities, universities, and organizations with sustainability-related projects and goals. Jason recorded this interview in early February 2017 with Boston-based energy consultant Peter Kelly Detweiler. In this interview, Jason and Peter explore the relationship between campus energy systems and the local utility provider, including the impact of demand-side management, peak demand charges, how utilities recoup their capital investments, the impact of cogeneration, and the rapid rate of change in how energy is delivered to campuses. I hope you enjoy Episode 2 of the Campus and Sustainability Podcast. Peter Kelly Deltweiler is an energy consultant based in Boston, Massachusetts. Peter has worked in the energy sector for over 30 years and been integral to the development of innovative demand-side management programs throughout the country. Today, Peter writes energy articles for Forbes, travels the country advising clients on energy procurement and management practices, and even finds time for the occasional early morning fishing trip. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to talk with us, Peter. We plan to talk a lot about uh, university sustainability on this show, and I've got four questions I'd like to kind of go through, and we can kind of dig deeper as it comes up. So with that, let's jump in. So one of my big questions for you is, uh, with the rapidly modernizing national and local campus grids, what roles are you seeing demand-side management playing between utilities and campuses going forward? So uh, campuses, universities, and colleges uh, represent significant portions of electricity load for a lot of utilities. They can certainly represent 5, 10, 15, or more megawatts in many cases. And so that's a, that's a significant portion of utility loads in many jurisdictions of the country. Uh, so what we're seeing is as utilities begin to focus more on integrating the customer in the planning conversation, particularly in certain markets where there's a real equality now on what's happening on the demand side with the supply side and a focus on making the entire grid more efficient. We're seeing that colleges and universities are being increasingly treated as partners in that conversation. That is, they're invited to become involved in that dialogue in terms of how and when they use electricity and what does that look like in terms of the context of the economics of the power grid. Okay, that's great. How are you seeing these opportunities playing out? And what are you seeing it as a benefit to the regional grid beyond the campus's borders? So the first thing is, um, let's talk about the grid in the beginning. One of the most critical things to understand about the power grid is that it's designed for reliability. It is designed for the maximum hour of peak demand uh, that could possibly be needed. Uh, since we're rolling into Super Bowl season uh, this week, oh yeah, my team happens to be in that again. Huh. Anyway, um, one of the things that I experienced when I worked with the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority 
uh, probably 10 years ago when I was discussing demand response with them, is they said to me, do you know when our peak demand is that we have to plan our pipes and our, and our whole treatment plan for? And I said, no. And they said, half time for a really close Super Bowl in which the Patriots are playing. <laughs> and I said, because everybody's running to the toilets, right? And they said, absolutely. And in Germany, uh, or sorry, England, there's a classic thing called the, uh, the steam kettle curve where during a game between Germany and the UK, a World Cup game, uh, during halftime, the, the grid peaks because everybody's running to turn on tea. That same thing wouldn't happen here because we don't drink tea. We'd go to the fridge and grab a beer. But, uh, but essentially, you have to think about sizing for your peak. So in the United States, the 100 hours of peak demand, of the 8,760 hours of annual demand on our peak, the, the highest 100 hours, we spend approximately 8% of our total infrastructure costs to meet those last 100 hours. So if we can push down that curve in those last 100 hours or highest 100 hours, we can save almost one-twelfth of our capital costs. So how does that involve the utility? How does it involve every customer on the grid? Well, if they are one of the contributors to that peak demand during those 100 hours, and there are ways of shaving that peak, shifting that peak to other periods, or eliminating it through energy efficiency, through generation on site, through other means like that, demand response, et cetera. Those savings are available to be recouped and paid among the various participants. Mm. So one of the things we all focus on as grid planners is how do we look at those maximum hours of peak demand and find ways to eliminate them? Okay, and also this infrastructure you're describing is an aging infrastructure where a lot of that capital is going to have to be reinvested eventually anyway. So you're saying that universities can have a role in how and that infrastructure is built and dispatched. Yeah, the American Society of Civil Engineers indicates that we are underinvesting on an annual basis by tens of billions of dollars in the grid. Um, if you look at the grid, there are many pieces on the grid, transformers and whatnot, that are older than I am, which is scandalous because I'm closing in on 57. Uh, so that's pretty bad stuff. Uh, so there's a lot of capital investment that has to be made in the relatively near future. And some of those capital investments can be avoided or deferred if we find ways to uh, become more efficient in our power consumption. And again, particularly reducing peak demand during periods of stress on the grid, which means there are payments that are available or financial opportunities. So if you look at uh, a typical utility in almost, uh, or a college or university, any utility in the country, they pay a power bill and they need to understand the contextual elements of that bill. So the first thing they pay for are the raw kilowatt hours. Somebody somewhere is sending electrons across the grid and the college or university is consuming those electrons, those kilowatt hours, energy. So you can reduce the cost of the energy. But you can also, um, you're also charged based upon um, what's your period of maximum peak demand during each month? Because the utility says, oh, we have to size our wires and poles infrastructure to serve you. So the first thing you look at is, what is your demand charge on the bill? And in some places, in Kentucky, California, New York, markets like that, the demand charge, that period of your peak demand for the month, that may represent as much as 40 or 45% of your overall costs. So the first thing you want to look at is where am I spiking in my demand and what can I do about it? And then you look at how can I reduce my overall 
kilowatt hour consumption as well, the raw electrons. And if you start to really understand the bill and the logic of that cost structure that you inhabit as a college or a university, that's where you first start. It's like learning a language, except it's a lot simpler. But you really need to understand what are the dynamics of that power bill in order to make sense out of it and know where to focus your energies. Okay, that's really interesting. And I've heard a little bit that um, with this older infrastructure in place that has already been paid off, that a lot of states and universities are benefiting from a reduced rate because they're not having to pay that capital return on investment because these are capital investments have been paid off. I assume with new infrastructure being planned, that could have an impact on rates going forward beyond just fuel charges and things like that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of utilities, even even though the infrastructure is paid off, they're now thinking about what are those replacement costs and they need to have the capital in place to to pay for that. And so all things being equal, because of that underinvestment to date, we're likely to see rates rise. Um, and as we do, then the question again becomes, are we going to spend that money in additional physical infrastructure or can we make that capital available in the form of savings to the consumers, the colleges and universities and other players. I might also add that in this period, uh, we are undergoing a rapid evolution and some say a revolution of the power grid where you see solar and electric vehicles and stationary energy storage and other technologies like smart lighting, which can reduce the consumption of a light bulb by 75%. There's all these new technologies coming onto the grid at the same time that these massive long-term infrastructural investments have to be made. And one of the fears, and, and I think it's a legitimate fear of the utilities, is they make these investments for an infrastructure for demand, and then nobody ends up showing up to the party because the demand simply does not materialize as we infuse more IT into the grid and we become more efficient at how we use electricity. So let's take an extreme example of one level of demand that's going to be reduced dramatically in the years to come. Nighttime LED lighting, street lighting. Right now, we light up our roads all night long from sunset to sunrise. The same illumination all night long in most places, but not in Cambridge, Massachusetts or Copenhagen. When the midnight comes along or one or two in the morning, the lights dim because there are fewer people who need them. That's fewer kilowatt hours being consumed across the system. Uh, in a place like Sweden, when you're driving a car down the road in the middle of the night and no one else is on the road, the road's dark except for you, and the road lights up ahead of you. The LED lights have sensors in them and anticipate your speed, know how fast you're moving down the road, and that use-directed electron moves ahead of you down the road. So now you might only be using 2 or 3% of the energy that was used otherwise during the nighttime. So that changes the ability of the utility to recoup revenues because they're not selling the electrons anymore. So again, one of these concerns is in this new world where there's all these new technologies and ways of thinking about electricity, there's a um, hesitance, dare I say, fear to make these large capital investments when we don't really know what this world's going to look like in five or ten years, which in the old days, five or ten years Everybody was fairly confident it would look the same. Nowadays, five or ten years is hugely different. Five years ago, solar was almost nothing. Now, there's 1.2 million households in this country with solar on them, and the next thing is going to be batteries, and there's already a half a million electric vehicles. Five years is a long time in today's world, and it wasn't 20 years ago. 
Well, that's, that's fascinating. And as you've hinted at, and, and as I've read before, you know, our previous 1940s, 1950s, 1960s utilities were built around baseload and then having peakers, natural gas peakers and other types of peaking devices to meet that those peaks that you're talking about. But what you seem to be suggesting now is that's kind of going out the window, especially with fracking and natural gas already changing the paradigm of peaking and natural gas as a baseload power. It just seems like that's going to speed up and escalate from what you're saying right now. Yeah, so there's a lot of dynamics that are unclear how they're going to evolve. One thing we know is that baseload energy consumption, which um, is principally the domain of industries that run three shifts, that actually is going over to China. We've lost our manufacturing load in this country. So, And, and at the same time, we've migrated into more and more of a service economy, which is a daytime economy, which involves computers and among all the things it involves, it'll much more... Uh, air conditioning. So we've become a peakier economy using more electricity during periods of peak demand than we used to be in the old days. Uh, so now the question is, how do we respond to that? How do we shape the grid differently? And what technologies can we bring to mitigate that increased peaking, peakiness that we haven't seen before? So this, what's, what's interesting right now is because there are so many different dynamics there's fracking, which is lowering the cost of natural gas, but there's LNG technology, which is increasing the demand of gas. There's solar panels, which fell by uh, 30% in just six months this year. Uh, battery storage, which was expected to decline by 50% over five years. Uh, we believe the new batteries coming out of China next year are going to be 30% cheaper than they are this year. So there's, there's all these different trends that are slamming into each other with an amazing, astonishing rapidity that just did not exist a decade ago. And how all these cards, once they're thrown up into the air, where they land, which ones are face up, which ones are face down, and where the aces lie, nobody really knows how that's quite going to look. But there's, there's an attempt to create a new playing field where the right incentives are put in place for people to do the right things at the right time with the right technologies. Circling back, that's great context, circling back to universities, if I'm a university facility director and I'm sitting here with an aging infrastructure, maybe a central plant, I do have maybe some on-site generation or at least backup potential, how am I taking advantage of some of these trends that you're seeing out there? How am I looking at them? How am I staging them? What am I looking at in the near term? What am I looking at further out? That's a, that's a good question. So first of all, whatever you're looking at this year, it's imperative to look at it again next year. You can't do a study and say, okay, I know what the world looks like. Now I'll put it on the shelf and forget it. Uh, because essentially you just looked at a snapshot in a, and we're, act, we're inhabiting a, a motion picture world where the frame's accelerating. But let's say we start with that one frame. The first thing you do is you look at, okay, how am I consuming electricity? And again, in the context of the bill, um, what is my plant likely to look like in the future? You know, my student body, what are my demands that are likely to change? And then um, do I have infrastructure that's due for renewal, for replacement, et cetera? What does that look like? And then the next question is once I understand my cost structure and my avoided costs and what I might need to do, then it's a conversation with your utility. Every university and college is large enough that they should be able to get the utility to sit across the table from them because you consume millions of dollars of power a year in most cases. So you're a significant enough consumer 
that the utility is going to sit down and have the conversation. In most cases, in many, the utilities have incentives for efficiency programs, for demand response, for inter interruptible rates, et cetera. So the first thing you want to find out is, okay, what's available to me? There's one example from your neck of the woods, Glasgow, Kentucky, where the municipality was paying uh, many tens of percentage of 30, 40% for the demand charge. And what did they do? They put batteries in all over behind the meter and residential uh, opportunities because they saw an ability to reduce costs in a way that made sense. That was their own little ecosystem, economic uh, ecosystem, if you will. But every utility has an economic ecosystem where they know where their avoided costs are and what makes sense to invest in and what doesn't. You as a college university have significant leverage because you're a large consumer. So the question then is, how do I sit across the table from my representative and say, all right, what is available to me now and what else might I be asking for from my utility? And it's a series of exploratory conversations to say, look, I know what the rebates are right now out there, but what if I did this? What if I were able to do that? And pretty soon, you know, if you might need a consultant, you might have someone on hand who can do it yourself. But if you know what you think your demand charges, your energy charges, your other charges on the bill are going to be, then you can turn around, you can look at, okay, does it make sense for me to put in solar storage? Is, do I need steam? Is cogen an opportunity here? What are, what are my opportunities and alternatives? The good news right now is you are no longer a price taker. You're not a hostage to a cost situation you cannot change. With all the technologies out there and all the developers and financial entities that are capable of stepping up to the plate and putting money behind these things, it's a completely different world than it was just a little while ago. But it does imply that you have to educate yourself and become an informed consumer. Well, that's, that's wonderful. And it, it also sounds like universities could benefit instead of acting, just thinking as a customer, maybe put themselves in the place of how the utility is seeing their larger grid and how as a large customer in that grid, they can, from their perspective, be an easier customer to work with, thereby hopefully getting lower rates or these other benefits. Uh, one formalized process. So, so just, so just, just to, you're, you're right about that. And one thing is the most effective negotiators know what they look like from the other side of the table. <laughs> that's great. Uh, and then as a formal example of that, that's taking place in some higher rates parts of the country that you have helped pioneer with your work at Constellation Energy uh, is dem demand side management or negawatt development of utility portfolios such as C-Power or what Internoc is working with. Can you talk a little bit about I know a lot of campuses out on the West Coast and East Coast are taking advantage of some of these along with other industry and utilities. Can you talk about other colleges that should be looking at this at other parts of the country and, and how these kinds of things work? Sure. So um, demand response typically takes place in a competitive power market or California, which isn't competitive, but has set up a similar sort of a structure. And what they do is they basically say, in addition to the utility demand charge, um, which is your period of maximum demand, your particular facility or whatever your meter is, they say, what's just as important for us is, what is your contribution to the hour when the system peak was reached, when everybody was contributing to the system peak? And then, so that's your ICAP charge, your installed capacity charge or your demand charge. And so what companies like C Power and Enernoc do is say, we can offer you a 
demand response program where let's say the cost of capacity is $50,000 a megawatt year. We'll give you say 80% of the value of that $40,000 a megawatt year. If you can commit to shaving your demand during periods when we call you now, if that involves some facilities manager in a college and maybe 15 students running around turning lights and air conditioning off and that sort of thing, that's a fool's errand. The good news is today, with the instrumentation that's out there right now in control systems, there's an ability to automate this that didn't exist just you know five or 10 years ago. We found a constellation. We built a platform called Virtualot, which then migrated to C-Power after we bought them, and then they were spun off, where customers could see their usage in real time. They could see prices in real time. And they could be curtailed automatically. And Enernock and all the, all the demand response providers now have similar capabilities because it's absolutely critical that the grid can rely on those curtailments during periods of peak demand and then customers get paid as a consequence. Yeah, that's wonderful. And, uh, and I guess one good example, you mentioned Glasgow, Kentucky earlier, and I know you've done some research on that. They've pushed similar kind of programs out because of their relationship with TVA. Uh, and they've really tried to push it not only into large commercial, but also commercial and residential. Do you see some good parallels there that maybe universities could draw from in looking at like a Glasgow situation? I do. And again, it starts with what, what Glasgow did. And, and Billy Ray, I actually interviewed him for Forbes piece a couple of years ago before he uh, enacted that program. And I was really impressed with, he has what you see in innovators, which is they see the world in a, in a really clear way. And he knew exactly what his cost structures were, and he was very proactive in thinking about how to approach them. And you see this with some of your more forward-thinking colleges and universities that are on the cutting edge. So, uh, for example, UCSD out in uh, San Diego, University of California, San Diego, where they have a microgrid, um, other colleges. One of the things that you and I had a chance to work on, Jason, was a sustainability program for university where we looked at best cases around the country. And I would encourage folks listening to the podcast to just Google uh, efficiency programs, universities, a cogeneration universities, microgrids, universities, demand response universities, and you'll get a really quick sense of who are some of the leaders in different spaces around the country. And that helps you not have to reinvent the wheel because you can see what other people did, how they did it, what some of the pitfalls were and a lot of the advantages. And with today's internet and the ability to, to email someone or pick up the phone and get that information, you can really short circuit uh, the learning curve that used to take so darn long just a short period of time ago. And so uh, what Billy Ray did, you know, he put the batteries behind the meter. Now we're starting to see universities in California putting batteries out there, um, becoming involved with integrating electric vehicles on their campuses, those sorts of things, putting obviously a lot of solar behind the meter to mitigate their uh, energy charges. And so again, there are a lot of technologies which not only taken individually, but sometimes combined together, like solar and storage together is, is not just one plus one equals two, it's more like one plus one equals 2.5 because they complement each other in helping to reduce costs. Um, so again, I would advise people, sometimes it's really helpful to get a consultant, but even before you do that, Go online and do some basic research. In four or five hours, you can inform yourself 
to the level where if you do hire a consultant, you can have a much more informed conversation and be asking much more intelligent questions earlier in the game than if you don't spend that initial time to understand the context. Okay, yeah, that is that is all wonderful. So we're coming down to the, the end of the 30 minutes here, and let me just ask you a kind of question to wrap this all together. Many people say that with the aging infrastructure, you've mentioned a little bit of that here, of our utilities, as well as all of these new technologies coming on, and then also adaptation issues around climate change, that universities really need to think about how redundancy and adaption to a changing and maybe volatile future would be coming down to them. Would you mind just sort of wrapping this all together into a sort of single vision of what you think a university or college should be doing or should be looking at and how they should be thinking of themselves in this larger world of energy? Sure. So I start with a couple premises. One is universities are that shining city on the hill, and they've always meant to be that. So they're, they're, they should be exemplars of what society at large should be thinking about. And they have traditionally had that role, which means, A, they, they need to be leaders, and it's also cost-effective for them and practical for them to be leaders because they're uh, mitigating risk that they're otherwise exposed to. So microgrids on campuses where you have the ability to uh, shut off the entire campus from the power grid in the case of a hurricane, Sandy, or some other outage. Some campuses are now doing that. Obviously, the solar and the storage. The second thing, though, is um, these are unparalleled education opportunities, hands-on education opportunities for students. And you put me in touch with somebody at University of Cincinnati, and I can't unfortunately remember his name right now, who is doing some really amazing things on the campus with new technologies. Uh, when there were new um, opportunities for upgrades, they got rid of a steam boiler, a dirty boiler, for example, and put in a more efficient system. And they had students involved in the process. What's better for a kid coming out of college, out of a master's or an undergrad degree, than to be able to point to his curriculum and say, I was involved in a hands-on program, building a microgrid, replacing a boiler, designing a solar system. One of the people that I work for right now, um, in one of my assignments, I work with a software company. And the, the best employee in the entire company is probably this uh, guy who graduated a few years ago. And he w was responsible for putting solar on his campus up in Maine at College of Atlantic. By the time we met him, he knew everything about inverters, DC-AC connections, the economics, how to size a thing, because he was a practitioner at the ground level, he was unbelievable, and he came straight out of college. These are the kinds of opportunities that not only can we, but should we, it's an obligation for us to be training the workforce of the future to know how to do this stuff. If we don't, it's practically criminal in this world that we're evolving into. We can't just, look, I love liberal arts. I'm a German major, but I also think it's really important for people to come out of school with some hard skills. And one of the things that people can really be educated with is how do you actually do this stuff? And I think every college and university should be trying to develop some kind of a program around these physical skills. One Forbes piece I wrote about community college down in the Carolinas, I think North Carolina, and they actually had a transformer on campus that the students could work on. They paid 
I think it was ten or fifteen thousand dollars a year to go to school for two years, and the starting salary of these kids coming out of school was eighty thousand dollars a year. Why? Because the utility industry is retiring half of its workforce in the next ten years. They need students who are literate both in the technology and in IT and how these pieces are all combining, and they're way short. We're going to have to import talent from overseas, and we're not even sure if we can get it there. So as much as anything, I see universities right now fulfilling a super critical role in training the workforce of the future, even while they're pragmatically solving their own problems on campus. And it's an unparalleled opportunity. Well, that's, that's amazing. So as a facility director at a college or university, I shouldn't just think about my brick and mortar. I shouldn't just think about my piece of the pie. Instead, I should be thinking, how can I align my objectives and goals with the larger mission of the university and college and bring in stakeholders across the entire campus community in what I'm trying to do as a comprehensive solution? Yeah, there's a, there's a unique opportunity. Look, we are moving through a revolution which is probably unparalleled. It's the sort of second computer, the second machine age which involves IT with this mandate to decarbonize. So the entire grid is going to transform within the next decade, two decades. It's a trillion-dollar transformation. China alone is investing $50 billion a year because they want to own this space. So here's this once-in-a-lifetime chance to be involved in this massive transformation of how we supply energy in what is arguably the biggest machine and the most complex machine in the world, which is our power grid. So here's this chance for higher education to not only solve its problems, but also to create this really powerful educational foundation and trajectory for students for the next decade to spin off into this emerging energy economy as it evolves. To me, it's one of the most exciting things that I see happening in our economy today. And it's so underdeveloped relative to the potential that lies out there right now. Well, that is terrific. I think that is a great optimistic, forward-looking view to stop here. Um, for those of you who are listening, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. There will be more podcasts coming out on sustainable issues with universities and colleges. If you'd like to learn more about Peter Kelly Deltweiler, he writes for Forbes, and you can Google his name and find it there. We'll also have a link with the podcast. So, Peter, thank you for your time today. Uh, your expertise is unparalleled in this area, and I'm really glad you took the time to share it with us. Well, thank you for making the opportunity available. Absolutely. Thank you, Peter. We hope you enjoyed this second episode of the Campus Energy and Sustainability Podcast. You can find links and other show notes on our website at campusenergypodcast.com. We'd love to hear your feedback. Please feel free to email us at feedback at campusenergypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.